Luke chapter 11, verse 45 down to verse 54. But let me read from verse 37 by way of context. This is what God's word says. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Now verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we have turned our eyes to your word and we ask that you would turn our eyes to you, that you would reveal yourself to us through these words. Help us to see better your true glory and your true essence. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all the people that Jesus encountered and interacted with during his ministry on earth, his greatest opponents were, as we know, the religious leaders. It was not the tax collectors, prostitutes, and all kinds of sinners, but it was the self-righteous religious elite for whom Jesus reserved his harshest words of condemnation time and time again. And if you've been with us throughout our study of the Gospel of Luke, I'm sure that this is very obvious to you now. And it may even sound repetitive at this point. But this morning, I want to press this thought a little bit more deeply because I think we might be surprised at how this principle might apply in the church today. You see, when Jesus opposed the religious leaders of his day, and when we say that, perhaps we might be quick to assume that the contemporary equivalent would be something like Jewish rabbis, Buddhist monks, 
or some other religious leaders uh, of false religions. And in a sense, that's not wrong because anyone who uh, teaches and leads people toward any kind of false religion of works-based salvation system is leading people away from the truth of the gospel and Jesus is opposed to such religious leaders to be sure. But the more I read and understand the Bible, especially the Gospels, and the more I grow to better understand God's heart as revealed in the Gospel, I am convinced that perhaps the closest modern equivalent to the religious leaders whom Jesus vehemently condemned are spiritual leaders within the church. Preachers. Pastors, elders, not all, but some. Now, why do I say this? Well, if we look at our passage today, you recall that last week we began in verse 37, in which Jesus was invited by a Pharisee to have a meal at the man's house. And so Jesus graciously obliged. And when he didn't cooperate with their religious tradition of a man-made rule of washing Uh, hands for ceremonial cleansing, which is nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. The Pharisee was shocked, which then led uh, to Jesus denouncing and exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees because what they espoused was a dead man-made religion in which they cared only about outward appearances and not the true inward substance of living faith. And so we saw that Jesus went to town by issuing three woes at the Pharisees for how they try so hard to appear holy on the surface when they were in fact spiritually dead inside. And today we continue that same conversation in verse 45 when one of the people in attendance at this meal suddenly chimed in and we find out that he was a lawyer. Now, the way we hear it in English, we would get the impression that he was an attorney by trade, someone who graduated from law school with a J.D., degree and passed the state bar exam and now works at one of those tall buildings off in Barcadero Street in San Francisco. Now that's what we usually think about when we hear the word lawyer. But when you see the word lawyer in the New Testament, it's actually actually referring to experts in the Jewish law. In other words, they were experts of the Old Testament, the law of Moses. These lawyers studied the Old Testament meticulously, and their job was to explain it. You see, the lawyers of Jesus' day, they were the Bible teachers. They were the Bible teachers because they were responsible for instructing and guiding the people in the ways of the Old Testament law on how to obey God, how to live to please God, and to live in conformity to his law. And as such, these lawyers, they worked very closely with the Pharisees because the lawyers were the theologians and the teachers of the Old Testament, and the Pharisees, they were the influencers, if you will, or better yet, they were the enforcers of the teachings of the lawyers and their interpretation of the Bible. And that's why when this particular lawyer heard Jesus excoriate the Pharisees, he interjected and said, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too, because they were working in tandem together for this teaching ministry of the Word of God. Now, do you hear that language? Do you see my point? The lawyers, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were not teachers of paganism. 
They were not studying and applying the Quran, the Book of Mormon. They were teachers of the Old Testament, which in Jesus' day, in the context of the early New Testament, the Old Testament was the entire Bible because the New Testament was yet to be written. And look, they weren't just loosey-goosey teachers of the Bible that just skimmed over verses and talked about how God wants you to be rich and comfortable and make all your carnal dreams come true like all those prosperity preachers on TV. No, these lawyers, these Pharisee scribes, they were meticulous and scrupulous with the Old Testament. One might even call them verse-by-verse Bible expositors. Ooh. They didn't go to law school and graduate with a J.D., They went to seminary and graduated with an MDiv. And yet, to these, Jesus reserves his most scathing words of rebuke and righteous anger. Why? Because as we'll see in what Jesus says about them, despite teaching from the Bible... And despite explaining every letter of the law, they missed the spirit of the law, the very spirit of God himself, who he is, what he is really like, and what he wants, not just from his people, but what he wants for his people. You see, it is possible to be a so-called Bible man a Bible preacher, and preach every verse of Scripture, and yet to do so in a way that misses the gospel of God's heart and character that spans from Genesis to Revelation, the glory of His grace that flows freely and joyfully to unworthy sinners who are in Christ. And if you miss this as a minister of the Word... You will suck the life out of people's souls and inevitably constrain them with the weight of legalism. And Jesus hates that. Why? Because all of it, all of that Bible exposition, it mischaracterizes God as though he were a cold, distant authoritarian who rules over his people with the iron rod of fear of punishment and a merciless demand for exactness simply for the sake of being exact, as though exactitude in and of itself is what pleases God. To portray God as such is actually to defame God. It is defamation by misrepresentation, and it always results in people who become spiritually lifeless, who are scared into a life of obedience, and they are joyless in their walk with the Lord. And this is what angered Jesus like no other, because this is not who God is. This is not the gospel. No matter how much it uses the language of the gospel, talking about God's grace, talking about Christ. And church, this is really my burning passion in ministry. I have just seen too many people spiritually destroyed and sapped of life within the very doors of theologically conservative Bible-committed churches. Now, don't get me wrong. I am 1,000% committed to the inerrancy of Scripture and to preach the whole counsel of God boldly and ashamedly. 
But, but this missing of the gospel, it can happen in the most subtle of ways if it loses sight of what I always talk about, the premise and logic of the gospel. That not a drop, not a single drop of God's constant love and perfect pleasure over us is on the basis of what we have done or what we have to offer to God, past, present, or future. But that His eternal love and delight is poured out to us in Christ alone, freely and sufficiently for eternity. And this is what every soul needs and longs for. This is our only comfort in life and death. That I am not my own, but I belong entirely to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins. And He preserves me unto the end. And by His Holy Spirit, He assures me of my eternal peace with God and thus inclines my heart to live for Him willingly and joyfully. Borrowing the words of the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. But you see, this is the true ministry of the Word that Jesus came to recover. Because this is God's unchanging message to the world from Genesis to Revelation. This is God's heartbeat pulsating in every law of Deuteronomy, glowing in every word of the Old Testament prophets, and explosively revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And one of the telltale signs that a minister of the word has lost sight of this purity of the gospel, even subtly and even unwittingly, is if the congregation feels increasingly weighed down by what appears to be the grueling demands of Scripture, rather than having their burdens lifted up by the gospel each week, such that with this freedom, they might leap along the race of faith. Notice the first woe that Jesus says, to the lawyers in verse 45. It begins, one of the lords answered him, teacher, and saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you lawyers also. I love that about Jesus. He was saying, oh, you're insulted? Good. You need to be insulted. And he says, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. As we know by now, the Pharisees and scribes and lawyers, they added to the word of God. They went beyond the requirements of scripture and overlaid on top of it the burden of man-made tradition and rules. But look, we need to understand how this came about in the first place. You know, it's really easy for us to simplistically vilify the Pharisees and lawyers and assume that they were just evil and corrupt from the get-go, and they maliciously set out to defile God's word, and that's why they added a bunch of extra rules. But no, that's actually not what happened. The the, the legalism of of first-century Judaism, it originally began with good intentions of the pursuit of holiness and trying to help people grow in holy living. And that's what makes it so dangerous because of its subtle and unintended origins. You see, the lawyers, these Bible interpreters and teachers, they were concerned with instructing the people on how to live out the Word of God. In other words, the goal of their ministry was to give guidance on how God's commandments are to be applied in practical everyday life. 
Now that's a good thing. Right? That's necessary. That's pastoral ministry in a nutshell. Any preacher worth his salt will endeavor to not just explain what this says, but to actually answer the question, how should the truth of Scripture in this passage actually impact and govern my life? And so look, there's, there's nothing wrong with explaining how God's word should apply in practical living. However, the problem is, when that responsibility of providing guidance and spiritual exhortation becomes a spiritual micromanagement of people's lives. Trying to supervise and govern over their every little move. Usurping the role of the Holy Spirit, taking His job and overseeing their every little move to ensure that they are staying within the perimeter of strict compliance to the letter of the law. And that's how it starts. And that quickly spiraled down into legalistic obedience. Now, I'll give you the quintessential example of the Pharisees and lawyers, the Sabbath commandment in the Old Testament. We see Jesus running into uh, this issue all the time with the Pharisees, don't we? Now, look, do you know what God meant by the Sabbath command? He said, and what he meant by it was, look, once a week, I want you to rest. That's what Sabbath means, Shabbat. It means to rest. It doesn't mean freeze, put your hands up. Okay, it just means rest. Enjoy, relax. The, the spirit of that law God's heart in issuing that commandment was to say, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Don't be anxious about next week. I know it's tempting to want to work tirelessly to amass for yourself as much as possible, but enjoy the blessing of trusting that I will provide and I promise to be faithful and provide for you. I care for you far more than the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. So when Jesus said that, he wasn't saying anything new. He was just recovering the true spirit of the law. And God was saying in the original Sabbath command, to prove it to you, I'm commanding you to rest once a week, and I will provide just what you need so that you might learn to trust in me, not yourself or the work of your hands. But these Pharisees and lawyers, when it came to the Sabbath commandment, they said, okay, thus saith the Lord, Do not work. That's your first mistake. That's the first problem. You primarily hear the word as prohibiting you from doing something as opposed to blessing you with what is best for you. You view his law as an arbitrary obligation to be obeyed rather than sensing his loving character. But because they construe the law in such ways, the question was, oh man, we don't want to break this rule that he has demanded of us. How do I not break it? Well, let's define what God means by work. Let's spell it out so that we know exactly where the lines are. And if we stay within these boundaries, we're golden. And that's your second problem. Your real desire is not to positively listen to and fulfill the law's intent, but only to avoid the technical breach of it. You're motivated just by fear. And so... 
as it pertains to the Sabbath command and, and the issue of work, they came up with a delineation of 39 prohibited activities on the Sabbath. If you do any of these, you're guilty. But if you don't do these, then you're good to go. Now, now what are these 39 prohibited activities? I'll read them to you. Uh, it's recorded for us in the Mishnah, which is the Jewish oral tradition of the rabbis, which has been written down. It's from Jesus' day, and we have a record of it. Okay, according to these lawyers, this is what you cannot do on the Sabbath, because this is what constitutes work. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing wool, beating wool, dyeing wool, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads. One is okay, but two is not. Uh, separating two threads, tying, untying. Okay, I'll stop there. I've got to number 22, but there's 39, 17 more left. For your sanity, I'll stop. But this is what work is defined as. And all the people under their ministry, so to speak, were beholden to these specific applications of the Sabbath law. And if you broke any of them, it was the same as breaking God's word. Needless to say, this crushed the people with a burden they could not bear, a burden God never intended in his word, because it was meant to be a blessing that lifted the burden of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. And so Jesus says to them, Woe to you, you're crushing souls with his unbiblical legalism. And the irony is, this application of the law that they impose on everyone, the, the, these, these laws were so onerous that even the lawyers and Pharisees themselves couldn't hold up to it. That's why Jesus says, I know that you yourselves do not touch the burns with one of your fingers. In fact, just to give you an example, one of the Sabbath rules that they came up with was that you cannot pick up anything that is heavier than a dried fig. Because anything heavier than a dried fig, if you pick it up on the Sabbath, that is work. But they quickly realized, gee, uh, this rule we made up, it's kind of cumbersome. And I imagine what happened was one of the Pharisees or lawyers, he was eating a Snickers bar, and he was and then he dropped it because he had butterfingers, no pun intended. And he dropped it on the floor, and he, as soon as he dropped it, he looked at the calendar and he said, No, it's the Sabbath, and it's heavier than a dried fig. What do I do? Ah, here's what we'll do. And they got together, and they added more rules. And guess what the rules were? You think I'm kidding. This is what the rules are. You can't pick up anything heavier than a dried fig. However, if you pick it up with the back of your hands, or if you pick it up with your mouth, that's okay because that's not the usual way in which you would pick up an item for work. That is what it says in the Mishnah. Utterly insane. But remember, all of this began with good intentions of wanting to guide people in obedience to God's commandments. And as ludicrous as the Pharisees and lawyers sound, this kind of nonsense happens all the time today in Bible churches. Where the pastors and leaders micromanage the spiritual life of the congregation by defining for them what is the narrow application of a given principle of Scripture. And it's because they can't imagine that every individual person is intricately unique and complex. And as such, they might not live out 
a command of scripture in the exact way that the leaders would expect them to or that the leaders themselves would do. I'll just give you one example. There are some families who feel pressure from uh, their super conservative Bible churches that the only truly faithful way to raise your kids in the Lord is to homeschool them. Where is that in the Bible? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm fully aware of the alarming condition of the state's public school system and the ideology that it propagates. And I mean, personally speaking, we'd be interested. We'd want to do that for our kids. But we'll see when we get there. Maybe, <laughs> maybe times will change. But listen, Scripture simply says to parents, instruct your children in the Lord. And if that's your honest desire and ambition, then may he bless you and your family as you do so. No matter what option you choose for your family, it's going to be a challenge either way. So whatever you do, do it for the glory of God with prayerful dependence on Him. But the problem is when churches, especially leaders, narrowly define what that must look like. And that quickly becomes, get this, the unspoken rule of the culture of the church. And it results in the exact same problem as first century Pharisaic Judaism, where cultural expectations are elevated above the purity of the Bible's commands. We can go on forever with all kinds of different examples. How you should spend your time, how you should spend your money, what kind of car you should drive, what kind of car you can't drive, what kind of clothes you should wear, shouldn't wear, where you should live, how far away from the church you should live, whether or not you're allowed to leave the church and go to another church or move away. Oh, that's a big one. Where are these rules in the Bible? And it's always with the pressure of, if you were really holy, okay, fine, it might not be spelled out in the Bible, but if you were really holy, you would do this. You see how this micromanagement quickly degenerates into legalism? The Christian life becomes then an endless list of unspoken rules that no one in their right mind can keep up with. And what's most egregious about it all is that as time goes on, the gospel of God's grace and the love of Christ fades into the sidelines and this rule keeping takes center stage. And so the totality of the Christian life mutates into a fixation. All the things that we're supposed to do to God or to do for God so that we can remain kosher. And the beauty of the gospel is defaced with the vandalism of legalistic duties. And souls are crushed by these burdens. What a scary thought that ministers of the word could be responsible for introducing such toxicity in the atmosphere of God's precious congregation. And as I say all this, I don't take this lightly myself. I know how easily I can lose sight of the gospel. I know how easy it is for my own spiritually dull heart many times to study and teach God's word without seeing and delighting in his love and goodness. And if I ever teach his word in a way that misses the spirit and presence of Christ, 
then I know that I will have failed to do true justice to his word. And that's what Jesus accuses the lawyers of doing in the second woe. In verse 47, he says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. And so you're witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. And therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles. Some of them they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now there's a lot here in these verses. And we could do multiple different studies on what is said here. Some of this we will revisit later uh, in, when we get to the Olivet Discourse in chapter 21 of Luke, uh, Lord willing. Especially as it pertains to what is going on with Jesus talking about this generation and the judgment that they face. But I just want to focus on the big picture of what Jesus is saying. And that is, you lawyers despite being so-called teachers of the word and Bible expositors, you are killing the word of God. And no surprise, you're just like your fathers who killed all of the prophets who were messengers of the word. Of course, we know this is the continual pattern of the Old Testament as the Israelites persistently rejected the words of God's prophets and put them to death, suppressing the truth. And so the unbelieving Jews would follow the same pattern in the New Testament, killing and persecuting the apostles as Jesus prophesied in verse 49. And of course, they even crucified and killed the ultimate prophet and apostle sent from heaven, Jesus himself. And so Jesus says, the apple does not fall far from the tree. Your ancestors killed the prophets and you are those who put the nail in the coffin. You build their tombs. And all of this will heap up the judgment owed to them because they were the most privileged generation of having God incarnate before their very eyes, testifying to the truth, but they rejected him. And the greater the privilege, the greater the judgment for rejection. And this judgment is described in these very graphic terms on account of the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. This is a very vivid way of talking about the entire Old Testament. Because Abel, Cain and Abel, was the first martyr, as we see in Genesis chapter 4, who was killed by his unbelieving brother Cain. And Zechariah, not the prophet who wrote the book Zechariah in the Old Testament, but a different Zechariah in Second Chronicles 24, he represented the last martyr of the Old Testament because, according to the Hebrew Bible's arrangement of the books, Second Chronicles is the last book in the final order of that arrangement. As opposed to our English Bibles and our arrangement, we arrange it by putting Malachi last. But all I have to say, Jesus was saying, you're just like your unbelieving fathers all throughout the Old Testament. You would have acted no different at every point in Old Testament history of reviling the word. Whether you live in the time of Genesis 4, or whether you live in the time of Second Chronicles 24. And as such, you will suffer judgment. But do you see the sense of what Jesus is saying? He was saying, you have nothing to do with God. You have nothing to do with any part of the Old Testament. 
in its true sense because you are murderers of God's word. Despite being spiritual leaders who supposedly teach the Bible, you are mangling the precious truth of Scripture. You actually destroy the true meaning and spirit of what it says, just like your fathers did. Now again, bear in mind the context in which this is being said. Because of course we know that there are many preachers and teachers out there today who take away from the Bible, who soften its message, who belittle sin. They just tell you nice fluffy things to tickle your ears so they can make the big bucks. But look, maybe it's just me. But they're pretty obvious. And they just reek of fraud. I don't think you even need to be a Christian to tell that they are just a bunch of con artists. They look and, and talk like a bunch of charlatans. Oh, God wants to make you filthy rich, but he wants to test your faith. And so send some money here to this, to this number and invest in eternity, and he will bless you. We take cash, credit card, and PayPal. I mean, come on. Those guys take the Bible so out of context and strip away the rest of it. If you took two seconds out of your time to just look up that verse for yourself, you would detect that it was a clear perversion of a text. So yes, they destroy the word, but it is so pathetically obvious. But who is Jesus talking to? Not those who take away from Scripture and dilute its message, but those who add to Scripture and defile the purity of God's grace with their filthy legalism. And they do it all in the name of holiness and pleasing God and obeying God. You know, it is equally tarnishing to the Word of God to add to it as it is to remove from it. Proverbs 30 verse 6 says, Do not add to God's words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. And these lies were coming from the lips of those who believed themselves to be the leading interpreters of Scripture. But all along, they were choking the Word. And as much as their fathers literally choked God's prophets to death. Because all this legalism, whether overt or subtle, it portrays God as exacting and domineering. And that is precisely how the serpent portrayed God to be in the garden in order to successfully deceive Adam and Eve into walking away from God. Remember the thing that he accomplished was making them doubt not the inerrancy of the text, not the canonicity of Scripture, but the character of God, first and foremost. And that's what these kinds of spiritual leaders end up doing. They lead people away from God in the end. Verse 52, this third and final woe. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering I wonder how many people have walked away from the faith, not because of all the liberal influence around them, not because they were enticed by other false religions, but because they spent their formative years in the pews of some fundamentalist Bible churches where they were only able to see God as cold 
and callous, as a stern ruler who just demanded things out of them. And these leaders and teachers to whom God stewarded the key of knowledge and gave to them the privilege of the pulpit on which they were called to faithfully represent and depict God and the perfections of all of His wondrous attributes, they instead took those keys and locked the doors shut, even unwittingly. And they hindered people from seeing God for who He really is. And they locked themselves out too while they were at it because they failed to see Him rightly. And so they failed to show Him rightly to others. I'm convinced that on the last day, some Bible expositor pastors will be surprised at God's disapproval and judgment when it's all said and done. Because James 3.1 says, Not many of you should desire to be teachers, for those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And from what I've seen, some of the greatest destruction of souls and spiritual abuses have come from the ministries of Bible-thumping churches. Because they beat their people into submission and domineer over them. And I'm not afraid to say, and no matter what their buddies say about them, no matter what their affiliates say about them, They are doing the work of the devil. Regardless of how sound their doctrinal statement is on paper. Because that's Satan's ministry, isn't it? To steal, kill, and destroy. To rob people of joy and to crush souls. And especially to do it disguised as an angel of light, as 2 Corinthians 11.14 says. And that's actually what we see in how the Pharisees and lawyers responded to Jesus' words. It says in verse 53, As he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things. They didn't heed Jesus' correction. Instead, they grew in hostility against him. And notice how Luke describes their attitude and demeanor in verse 54. It says, They were lying in wait for him. That is, they were waiting in ambush. And they were waiting to catch him in something he might say. You know the word catch here? It's actually hunting terminology. Do you see how Luke is describing them? These are words that are depicting the predatorial behavior of a snake. Serpent-like behavior. This is no surprise because in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, To these spiritual leaders, you serpents, you brood of vipers, you sons of snakes. You are just like your father, the devil. In case in point, they behaved as such, wanted to hunt down Jesus, which they eventually did. Again, to our surprise, it was all under the guise of the ministry of the word and instructing people toward obedience. And it's for this reason that Whenever I hear and see of pastors and church leaders shepherding the congregation with a heavy hand and ruling over their lives with legalistic micromanagement, I just can't help but wonder whose ministry they are really serving. Are they carrying out the ministry of the Holy Spirit or the ministry of the serpent? 
That's a bold statement, I know. But look, if the result is that people are constantly crushed under the weight of condemnation, and they are being conditioned to live the Christian life, always having to look over their shoulders with no assurance of their salvation, then at the very least, what I can say for sure is that that is not the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is not gospel ministry, no matter how many times they say the word gospel. Because the work of the Holy Spirit, who He is and what He does, is to apply the truth and promises of the gospel to our hearts. That's what He does for us. That's how He ministers to us. To reassure us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. To bear witness in our hearts that we are indeed Children of God. And He is our Father. Romans 8.15 He helps us not when we are strong and feel deserving of God's love, but He helps us in our weaknesses, it says in Romans 8.26 He is the seal of our salvation, the guarantee of our inheritance unto the end. Ephesians 1.14 And the Holy Spirit is at work to constantly communicate God's love to us, which has been poured out to us in Christ, Romans 5, 5. Because of our greatest problem as Christians, the root cause of all of our daily struggles with sin is that we struggle to believe the fullness of God's infinite love for His children. And as such, how trustworthy is His loving will for our lives and what happiness He leads us towards through His fatherly words of instruction. And it's because we sometimes disbelieve this very goodness of God. That's why we stray elsewhere toward the different voices that whisper the false promise of more joy and satisfaction and pleasure and fulfillment to be had outside of God's perfect and loving will. And that is why, church, we need to behold Christ over and over again because God demonstrates His love for us through His Son who while we were yet sinners, He died for us. That Christ gave Himself for us to totally free us from the guilt of sin and completely fulfill for us the demand of God's righteous law that we failed to uphold, that we never could, even with all the legalism in the world. You see, God needs nothing from us Christ has done it all for us. And so then, by fixating our minds and hearts on Christ, we can be reminded and assured that this means that every command that God speaks to us now is to give to us, to bless us, to shower us with the best of His love because that is the heart of the One who has revealed Himself as the perfect Heavenly Father. And the more we believe this, the more it will liberate us to spring toward the path of righteousness. I just hate seeing God people destroy this is what ignites true obedience 
and faithfulness and devotion and sacrifice and holiness. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ alone in his perfect purity. Church, my prayer constantly is that God would help me, that he would just help me to show you how beautiful the gospel really is. How glorious Christ really is. And how happy it is to live out our union with him. I don't always do it well because I myself am still growing to fathom this unfathomable glory. But if I could just do that, I would be happy. And at the very least, I hope that what you've seen here in this passage and seeing Jesus' absolute disgust of all that misrepresents God's true character, I hope that his words have served to show you how good God really is and how worthy he is of our utmost love and worship. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word that shows us and takes us to your very heart. I pray that you would protect our church from the lies of legalism and that you would guard us in the purity of your grace. And we thank you that you have given us this most precious sacrament the Lord's Supper, by which you convey to us in a very intimate and tangible way the gesture of your love and that you feed our weary and weak and famished souls with the reminder of your grace that Christ has died and finished the work completely. Would you prepare our hearts to receive it in faith and strengthen us that we might believe and embrace the gospel more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.